I'm Sean Brown with McKinsey's Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. The COVID crisis has dominated headlines and our lives, and it's still not clear when and how we will return to the world we knew. Many questions remain. How will communities, businesses, and governments continue to respond to the crisis, and what are some of the possible scenarios that decision makers should consider? To offer some perspectives on these questions, we feature a recent conversation between Sven Smith and Francisco Ortega. Sven is a senior partner at McKinsey based in our Amsterdam office and is co-chair of the McKinsey Global Institute. He recently co-authored the article, Safeguarding Our Lives and Our Livelihoods, which forms the basis of this discussion. Francisco is a senior partner based in our Buenos Aires office and serves as managing partner for Spanish Latin America. Sven and Francisco recently spoke via video conference in mid-April. Following is an edited version of their conversation. So, Sven, good morning. Thank you very much for joining us. We are in, you know, in, in time of coronavirus. The pandemic is... Uh, arriving to our region. We are in the first weeks of the lockdown. We have written a, an article that has an enormous impact about uh, how to protect uh, our lives and our life. So if you can, you know, as a, as a starter, give us a, introduce us to the, your main thoughts, you know, in this context of this, uh, in these unprecedented times. Thank you, Paco. And it's great to connect with Spanish-speaking Latin and all the countries. I know you are dealing with this event already in many, many ways. Here in Europe, where I live, the virus has gotten closer. Of course, they started in Asia, but in Europe, it's now so close that everybody knows people that have corona, everybody knows people that are in hospital, and many people know people that have died. And so this is, first and foremost, the humanitarian crisis that is affecting the lives of people. And I'm full well aware that that's on your minds. You're caring about your people, you're caring about people that work for you. And that's where all of this starts. And we've been looking at how can you, in this moment of great uncertainty, uncertainty about how the virus spreads, how adequate our measures are to prevent the spreading, how adequate our measures are to treat the people that are ill, how well is that going? What is the range of uncertainty on the health side? But what we increasingly have also seen over the last weeks is just the enormous enormity of the economic impact of what happens when you lock down a country. And that shock is very big. And in that context, governments then have started to launch lots of support measures on the economic side to protect people and businesses. And in that space, we have drawn up a set of scenarios. And on the viral side, we think about three levels of duration, let's call it that way. The examples of the Asian countries, the early Asian countries, whether that's Korea, Japan, Taiwan, Singapore, or China, is it takes two to three months to lock down and start opening up. It's a bit varied, but it's an intense lockdown for two to three months to get the virus over the peak and back down to be comfortable to open up. And what I remind that this is not well understood enough, even in Europe and the US, that the opening up in China, in Korea, is cautious. And cautious means significant chunks of the economy don't work at full capacity. So this thing is not, you're over after two months, the virus is still around, 
because we haven't found a cure or a treatment yet. And so you need to be cautious to prevent this thing to come back. And I can come back to the, just the intensity of those protocols later. The second level would be this lasts longer, could be in the Western world, than the way the Chinese and the Koreans did this. Uh, and it keeps coming back a little bit regionally. That would be a wor not so good case for the virus. And the third case, which we call it the bad case on the virus, would mean that we basically don't find a way to fully lock down and suppress the virus. And it keeps coming back. You get a second peak and all that kind of stuff. And basically, we have to wait until there is a vaccine, which is 12 to 18 months out, and or a treatment, which may be 6 to 12 months out. And then, you know, the virus could get more freedom because we can treat when people get ill. So that's the range. The leading indicator on this is very much the number of people going into hospital requiring critical care, because that hits the hospital bottleneck of the ICUs. And the good news is that number has come down in the early Asian countries, but the good news is this number has come down in Europe, in Italy, in Spain, in Germany, in Belgium, in the Netherlands, in the Scandinavian countries, and it has come down in New York. But in Italy, it's seriously down in Spain, which tells us that the Western-style lockdowns, which were less intense than the Asian ones, and less tested and less traced, work. What we don't know yet is how long it will take until they're fully down so you can reopen. So they could be in the second scenario or in the first scenario. We don't know yet. But the good news is the lockdowns work to suppress the virus. Now, if you then go, what happens to people that operate in lockdown in terms of the economic behavior, what we find is that 40 to 50% of discretionary spend goes away. People don't buy cars. Of course, they don't fly. They don't travel. They don't buy expensive equipment. Maybe they do buy some communication equipment because they need to connect. Uh, but large chunks of the economy are you know, not considered anymore as something that people do. The size of that is that 40 to 50% of discretionary spend going away. If you then add that imports, exports, yitter, and you add that uh, investment jitters, you can see an economic shock to the tune of 8 to 13% of GDP. And that is the largest shock since World War II, and it's also larger than the first quarter of, this, of the Great Depression. And of course, as a consequence, governments have launched massive stimulus actions, massive. Germany even went for 10%. The US, if you add it all up, is 30%, supporting businesses, supporting people. But is that going to work? Well, the reality is, if you give somebody $1,000 or $3,000 for a family when they don't have a job, are they going to spend it or are they going to save it? And what we see is they're actually saving it. And so you need to think about these scenarios of the three levels of the virus and then the effectiveness of the economic response. Is it going to be effective, partially effective or ineffective? And in that box that is then a nine-box matrix, we come with two central scenarios. One is what we call A3, is you go down 10, and it takes six to eight months to get back up. Or you go down 10, which is A1, and it takes two to three years to go back up. Wow. Well, it's a, a very um, clearly complex scenario, right? Um, yeah. And that will test us all, uh, all around the world. Now, in the article, you comment uh, a bit on some recommendations on how to behave and act uh, on both imperatives, right? So, can you comment a little bit on that? Yeah, so if you think about the, the imperative of saving lives, what the world is doing is converging. 
everybody is doing forms of lockdown, social distancing, and so to make sure that the virus doesn't spread. Everybody's working on the capacity of the hospitals to deal with the situation. So more ventilators, more breathing machines, more ICUs, more nurses, more doctors, and all that stuff to be able to treat more patients, which means that if the virus continues to spread, we actually have the capacity to deal with it. And there's the race for cures and treatments. The vaccine might be 12 to 18 months out, the cure is 6 to 12. But then if you look at the economy, all the stimulus is working, which is, you know, debt is being rolled over, uh, people that are furloughed get money, unemployed get unemployment benefits that normally wouldn't have been given uh, in conservative governments and so on. So all that, that kind of stuff is happening. But there's something else that's very important, which I consider the leading indicator on whether the economy will be back. And that is whether people have the feeling that their lives will be back, that their livelihoods will be back, that their jobs are back. And the strange thing is, we today live in a world where at the one end, doctors can work in a hospital, which are very dangerous because it's infectious everywhere. They wear suits and have protocols and procedure that makes it work. The milk factory runs with procedure. The pharma factory runs. The police runs. The firemen work. We can even go to the supermarket. But then all kinds of other things, like going to an office, uh, going to a theater, going to a restaurant, and many, many other things, it's not okay at the moment. And what we will have to work towards is to have a protocol to get back to work in every single walk of life. In addition, everybody's working on testing, both corona and antibody. Everybody's working on a form of tracing, finding the one that will work in the Western world. Uh, you know, that's going to be a little controversial here and there. So that's, that's also being done. Uh, and to me, it's good on the leading educator on that is when I talked to governments four weeks ago in the US and Europe, hardly anyone was thinking about how to go back to work. Now it's a prime minister issue. The Italian prime minister, the Austrian prime minister, the Spanish prime minister, the Canadian prime minister, they're all talking about how do we live with the virus? Because the assumption has to be, until we have a cure or a treatment, we're going to live with this virus. And it has the tendency to come back. And then the other one to highlight is that CEOs, two weeks ago, not one was writing protocols for their companies on how to go back in some of the tasks that they did, weren't doing. This week, 70% of the CEOs I talked to are actually busy doing that. How do, can I go back to office? How can I go back to this? How can I do this? So what I also observe in these times is that three months happen in two, two days. Every two days, another three months passes. I don't know how you feel, but that speed is just amazing. In your article, you comment uh, a little bit on some of the protocols that you think in different industries. What do we have been seeing? Can you maybe give yeah. one So, in a way, all the protocols think about separating people, separating segments of the population, and finding protection and distance, if you look at it, and add hygiene. So, what I'm sure is hygiene measures will stay, washing hands in every job and so on, regularly and so on. That will have to stay for a long time. But at the moment, we work on what I would call individual in separation. So individuals should keep distance. What the Chinese and the Koreans are working on is what's called community separation. So in a factory, you work in groups of 20. They actually are close. But if one person gets ill, that group goes out and goes into quarantine again. 
The other one is a large factory in China has basically tested all 30,000 employees and they are on site. This is only something you can do in China, but they're on site for four months and then they go off and they get tested again and they're on site for four months. Uh, with, 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 you know, uh, dormitories around it. I'm not saying that that's the ideal solution, but what they're doing is they're separating groups. So, and then, you know, on the population side, people are now thinking in Europe very seriously where the young kids should go back to school. They might even then get infected, but they can sustain it. Uh, so that's a discussion that's being had. People are discussing should the older people stay home or the high-risk groups stay home while the non-high-risk groups could go and create some, get some Im immunity. And then there's tracing and testing. So when you find that somebody's ill, test it and then find who in contact they were and they need to go back to quarantine. All those things together hopefully produce a cocktail that brings this contagion down to a level that we can deal with it and we can deal with it in the hospitals too from a capacity perspective. And many of these factors are being done. But the one thing that I want to impress and I, from conversation in Europe and the US, it's not fully understood just how intense these measures are. When you were commenting uh, on, on the experience in China, what about Europe, in particular businesses, right? How they are responding now in the, in the middle of uh, the situation? Now, first of all, the outcome per type of business is very different. You know, airlines are in a near standard still, while some of the health companies are like 200% up. So the range is really strange. And food companies are up. Discretionary, of course, is down. So this, this spread of experiences of companies is very large. The thing that I want to give a heads up on, and I'm sure this will come to Latin soon, is that strange things are happening. Let me give you three examples of strange things. So if you are in a company that can help the health crisis, you might get a question from the government to sit together with your competitors and find a solution. Sharing data and information and IT that you were never allowed to share, but now they ask you to share. If you're in an industry that is in real trouble, you might get a call suggesting the path to nationalization or supporting the people with big furloughs. This has happened. There are people that are really reconsidering how they support society in a very intense way, first and foremost, because that's what they want to do and they use their profits to do so. But do not underestimate that how you behave in the coming months will be how you will be reckoned with after this event. The size of this event and the level of carnage, let's say, that's associated with it, at some point could ricochet in a blame game. What did you do? How did you help? And not dealing with that on time is an issue too. And so we start to see companies increasingly dealing with a wide range of issues far beyond dealing with the immediate crisis. So the immediate crisis is supply chain, keep your people safe, work from home, deal with your customers, deal with your communities, and so on. And everybody set up a team to get that done. Uh, there's big issues in supply chain, don't get me wrong, there's big issues in uh, how you do all of this right. But increasingly, I see companies adding an effort to plan ahead for all the things that are still to come, which will be pretty wild given the size of this event. At this point in their online discussion, Francisco and Sven took questions from the audience. I got a first question is, um, my organization has been fully focused in crisis management. What do we need to do uh, to win after the recovery? I would think about doing something today, which has to do with winning after the recovery. I think a lot of people say it would be good if I know how 
the world will look, you know, in a new normal in a year or two or three or four from now, whatever the time frame. I think we will only gradually walk into that new normal. A few things we know. Certain things that we were already planning for the future are happening much faster. Telemedicine was a very low number. It has gone to 70% in many places from nothing. So digitization, you know, telecommunication companies talk about digital only and so on. So the whole digital transformation, the online transformation is just going faster. And I think that's going to stay, it might, not, it might bounce back a little bit, but there's a lot of it that will stay because we're learning that this is good behavior and it actually is good experience. On some other things, you know, I think resilience will be thought through differently. Uh, you know, how do you think about your supply chains? How do you think about what's the proper stock level and all that kind of stuff? So that will change, I, I think. But there will be new things, completely new behaviors that I don't think we will know yet. And depending on the duration of the crisis, the size of the behavioral shift will be different. If we go back in three months, you know, we probably will forget about it roughly. You know, if we go back in seriousness in two years, during those two years, we'll get new habits. Then two years, you won't take public transport because that's too crowded or you will take it only with a mask or something like that. And then, you know, cars might be a good thing. But if it lasts three months, public transport could be back. And so, so I think the duration of the recovery actually matters to this and that you need to study and watch. I also believe that many industries will be not restructured, but reconstructed. So they will both restructure, but also rebuild something towards that future. And since that future is not 100% known, what I would do is you have to up your experimentation. Now, let me give you one strange one. In China... Architects are now working on apartments that are less noisy for neighbors because after six months being locked down and tied to each other, people are really getting irritated about the noise. It's strange, but you know, I don't think that stuff you, you make up by doing a brainstorm. You have to study what's happening and these behaviors will continue to shift. And little things like this are just illustrations of stuff that will happen. It will be big and small. But I would view it as a learning journey where you try to look ahead as far as possible, but also in the near term so that you can grow with the shift of behavior. If you start to study, will telemedicine be 50 or 70% in the new normal? Well, today it's shifting 10% a month and you're not on it. You, you won't ever get to the 50 to 70. So you've got to go with the shift that's happening today also, recognizing that not all of them will be profitable, by the way. Thank you, Sven. You know, in Latin America, we have social tensions, right, and the level of poverty, different countries, they vary, but it's always in high levels. How do you manage to adapt, let's say, the, the, the recovery? What do you suggest in the context of Latin America, of, of more uh, poor countries? In particular, one of the questions says here, uh, how do you buy social peace in poor countries without resources to make large transfers to the most needed? So how do we think in general in Latin America yeah. These tensions are big. And why are these tensions existing? Just to be clear, some of these tensions exist in the United States too and Europe. I know it's bigger in Latin and in India and Africa and so on, but it's not zero in Europe and the US. And what it is, is if you think about Europe and the US, and then I'll go to Latin quickly, uh, a large chunk of the population in, in Europe and the US has basically six to eight weeks in cash besides their debts. So if this event is longer and you're a waiter and you have no work, how is this going to work? Now, if you go to Latam in India, the amount of money the governments can pump is going to be a little less. And the duration of cash on hand for a chunk of the population is much shorter. You know, I was talking to a group in India, and they were talking about a large group that basically has two days of cash in hand. So if your lockdown is three weeks, 
you're basically discussing how long they can do without food or group kitchens. And I do think this is a time where it's not just a market that can decide. We will have to recognize this tension and care more and disproportionately more for those that will be affected more with their jobs. And I think governments are probably oriented towards that. But I think as a company, in hindsight, if you didn't do it, you'll be reckoned with. That's my basic hypothesis. And I've seen people do very serious stuff. Let me give you an example. There was a global consumer company that basically had no travel budget left because nobody's traveling. And instead of using it as a saving and take it to profit, what they did is they said to all their countries, keep the budget and make a donation. I found that a symbolic but also real thing because it was about real money. And I found it very practical also. You know, you earmark the money according to the travel and then, you know, let people do a donation. And that is something that scales to the size of that company. And I think we will have to think about that a lot as leaders because the tension is just a reflection of just how poor these people are. Very insightful. Thank you, Sven. Another question. If you look at companies that have come better than competitors in crisis, you know, throughout the crisis in, in history, is there any highlight or any differentiation or any yeah. other that has uh, made them uh, win over this type of severe crisis? Yeah, so there have been three markers that we looked at. One is balance sheets matter. If there's unpredictability, the only security is balance sheet. Because at the end of the day, that means when you need to go to the debt markets and all that kind of stuff. And what we saw is the companies that were more resilient to crisis dealt with their balance sheet fast. Because as the shock progresses, the closer you get to the real shock, the window closes. So balance sheet matters like no tomorrow, whether you're a bank or a normal company. Then if you have the balance sheet, we found that the people that reflected reality in their moves early, not necessarily at full scale, but started to participate and therefore learn, did better. They didn't ignore what was happening, but they moved with what was happening. And because of the learning, they then became more agile to move with where the next flows were. And as a result, you could find that they, during the crisis, had higher growth that then extended post-growth. And at the same time, they didn't wait with cost. Now, in this moment, I think, because of what I just said about the social tension stuff, I think you have to do cost in a humane way. But if digital only is the trend, you can't say, well, let's not do digital only because it's going to save costs and it's going to lead to people without work. What you then have to do is, what are these people going to do? So you solve the two problems. Thank you, Sven. Another question. How do we see supply chains evolving? Yeah, so I think there are two angles at this question. It's a very important question. Many people ask them also, will globalization break? That's in the same vein. When I look at the current event, of course, supply chains are strained. But what's needed will get done. I'm fairly sure about that. What people will be doing more is stress testing their supply chain and figuring out whether they can have single points of failure. Let me give you an example. The automotive industry in China has a single point of failure in Italy. So while they have demand, they can't produce because Italy is in lockdown. And so I think people will be checking for single point of failure and try to see, can you prevent that? I'm not convinced that we will go to a complete global separation of supply chain, but we will be more careful in terms of risk managing our supply. Uh, another question. When there will be a clear view, uh, in terms of timing, right? When there will be a clear view on the right strategies? So I get a lot of questions like, Sven's great that you give me these scenarios, but which one is it? That would be just a lot easier. Yeah? Yes. Because then I'll just plan for that one. It's easier to take the bad one or the good one and just run with it. Yeah. Because I can't plan two production levels. I can only plan one production level. 
And I, I think that's a fair question, a fair challenge that people have to think about scenarios. I think I use the scenarios in the following way, is that I'm robust as a company against multiple scenarios, but at any moment in time, I'm in one frame. That's the first point to say. Now, then the question is, when can I know which frame I'm in? And I would say the two signals to look at is, I'm now comfortable that in most countries that have gone through the peak, we kind of know that we will get down and we will open up. What we don't know is how much of the economy will open up and how much resurgence of the virus we get. And I would look across the summer if by the opening up that might happen pre-summer, I have to believe stuff will happen in May, stuff will happen in June, uh, schools will probably open for a few weeks and then close again for the summer or something. If we then learn with all the measures that we then do that the virus doesn't research very quickly in the Western world again, like it hasn't done in Asia, we will continue to open up and we'll continue to learn. And in the meantime, an amazing amount of innovation will add hospital capacity, which means we can deal with more virus. We'll get closer to treatment and we'll get all kinds of things that we learn together. And then we get through it. If you see us getting difficulty of opening up during the summer, and so you see the difficulty of opening up in September, October, then so much will break in the rest of the economy, no matter what support governments give, that it will take lasting effects into more years. And then you're more into the A1 world. That, that's how I would look at it. This, so it's, I can't say it now, but it will clarify in the, in, to some degree in the next few months, also because the treatment discussion is a few months out from a wildcard perspective. Very interesting, Sven. Another question, what are some highlights, positive outcomes we have seen from this? How will the world be better after this? Yeah. So um, here's my great optimism, and I'll do it by a prediction three years out. And, you know, this is personal. It's not McKinsey. But my personal prediction is when we look back in a few years on this event, we will say to each other that we experienced a one in 60 viral event, one in 60 years, and a one in 100 year economic event. And we did a job pretty well. Today, when we're in the middle of it, it feels painful, it feels chaotic. But if you imagine that this is of the size of an economic shock of World War II and the beginning of the Great Depression, if you add to that that we're doing the Spanish flu type stuff in addition to it, uh, and we are actually getting this under control in two years, let's say that that's the time frame, we will look back in four years and say, job well done. And one of the reasons why we might get there is just because of the size of the innovation and collaboration. What I find super unique about this moment is what I said, the three months happening in two days from an innovation perspective and from a collective learning perspective. Everybody's talking to each other across sectors, across government and, and business, all layers of society. And in that conversation, we're innovating to deal with this problem. And I make this joke that if we could keep 10% of the innovation speed that we have now for our lives after this crisis, continued miracles will happen. That to me is the positive, the sheer innovation speed. This digital stuff maybe allows us to be more with our families. And maybe we'll also learn how to not do too many of these things per day and actually be with our families. And so I think lots of beautiful things can happen on the back of what is the largest innovation engine ever launched on this planet. Sven, to close, and thank you very much to share. 
some practical advice for our leaders of businesses and in general of our societies as we're starting to head into the, the, the crisis? My most practical advice for leaders is, as you have your team set up to do the work, including maybe this plan ahead effort, be in touch with lots of the people, government, your teams, your people on the ground, your customers, because to observe in real time what's happening in this enormous innovation of three months happening in two days. If you're not feeling it on a very direct basis, you're going to be able, you're going to miss hit lots of things. This is the time to study what's happening around you by interacting with lots of people, also groups of people that you normally would not interact with. Do it in your value chain, do it in your, with your peers, do it with your surroundings, with your communities. Because you will pick up stuff that will be very important to your future decision-making. And you can't do it in a monthly or, or quarterly study because the world is just moving too fast. Adopt to this speed. Uh, that is phenomenal. Adopt to the size of shock. Uh, and practically, that means study what's going around very pragmatically and then take the size of action. Because the speed of the event should over time also dictate the speed of what, how you're acting. As many people have said, as the virus has dictated how we had to respond from a lockdown perspective, the economic issues will dictate how fast we will need to act as leaders. Don't forget the speed at which this event is progressing. It's exponential and it requires exponential interaction for you and decision making. Sven, thank you very much. And this concludes our episode of Inside the Strategy Room. If you have any feedback or ideas for future episodes, we encourage you to contact us at Inside the Strategy Room at McKinsey.com. To receive automatic alerts on our latest insights, we encourage you to sign up for email updates on our website. Follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy or connect with our community on LinkedIn via the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again soon for our next episode of Inside the Strategy Room.